Well, let's take our Bibles again, turn over to the book of 2 Chronicles, chapter 9. 2 Chronicles, chapter 9, we're going to begin in verse 22, and last week we began talking a little bit about Rehoboam, and we looked at his life a little bit. <clears throat> we said we wanted to learn some lessons from a king and son of the wisest man who ever lived. Now, there are two ways to learn from people. You can learn by what they do right, and you can learn by what they do wrong. You can learn what to do, you can learn what not to do. <clears throat> and uh, with Rehoboam, it seems probably a little more than not, it's kind of like what not to do, you know what I mean? But uh, let's go ahead and continue. We'll pick up here in just a moment where we left off. But in Second Chronicles chapter 9, beginning in verse 22, <clears throat> the Bible says, And King Solomon passed all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom, and all the kings of the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom that God had put in his heart. They brought every man his present, vessels of silver and vessels of gold and raiment, harness and spices, horses and mules, a rate year by year. And Solomon had 4,000 stalls for horses and chariots, 12,000 horsemen whom he bestowed in the chariot cities and with the king at Jerusalem. He reigned over all the kings from the river even unto the land of the Philistines, to the border of Egypt. The king made silver and Jerusalem as stones, and cedar trees made he as the sycamore trees that are in the low plains in abundance. They brought unto Solomon horses out of Egypt and out of all the lands. <clears throat> now the rest of the acts of Solomon, first and last, are they not written in the book of Nathan, the prophet, and in the prophecy of Ahijah, the Sholonite, Shilonite, excuse me, and in the visions of Ido, the <laughs> listen to, uh, <clears throat> um, what's his name, um, Alexander Scorby, Alexander Scorby, he'll tell you how to do all that stuff, <clears throat> you're barking up the wrong tree getting me to pronounce things all right all the time, but anyway, he uh, is the seer against Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over, the, over all Israel 40 years. And Solomon slept with his fathers. And he was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his stead. <clears throat> now, here we have Rehoboam. Before he begins to reign, his father Solomon is like, I mean, he, he's like an, an, I'm an amazing king overall. I mean, he is a king that really, and has a kingdom that represents and is uh, picturesque of even the millennial kingdom and reign of Christ. It's an amazing thing. There was peace in the time of Solomon, and there'll be peace in the time of the reign of Jesus Christ as well. But now Rehoboam takes over, and we know and have read already and discussed this idea that Jeroboam had opposed Solomon, and as a result, Solomon had sought his life. He flees to Egypt. Now, all of a sudden, upon the death of Solomon, Jeroboam finds his way back into Israel. <clears throat> Rehoboam, of course, is given an ultimatum by Jeroboam and the people, and uh, they want him to ease up a little bit. Daddy was a little hard on us. If you'll just take it easy on us, we'll serve you. But as I said before, it's a little bit interesting uh, we learned a couple of lessons along the way, but there is an interesting fact to this, that when Israel goes to Rehoboam, so does Jeroboam, and I don't like that. Uh, you know, that's not a very good thing. They should have never taken Jeroboam with them because that just may be basically said, guess what? 
uh, we've already got someone else if you're not going to show up and do what we want you to do. That's not really how to handle things, and we talked a little bit about some of that already. <clears throat> but nonetheless, we learned a couple of, uh, we've noted a couple of mistakes that Jeroboam made along the way. And one of those mistakes is that he had followed the advice of his peers instead of his father's counselors. We talked about that, and we noted that <clears throat> every generation believes they know more than the last generation. And then we said we are shaped by those we surround ourselves with. And uh, Jeroboam, or excuse me, Rehoboam made a mistake there. That was a mistake that he made. Now, <clears throat> we also noted mistake number two. <clears throat> we said that he followed in the footsteps of his father Solomon when it came to women. That wasn't too good. He multiplied wives a little bit too. We said he had 18 wives, 60 concubines, 28 sons and 60 daughters. He had 88 kids. That's not doing bad. And, uh, you know, he was doing a lot of multiplying wives as well. And that, that probably didn't turn out too well for him either. But the whole point of that is simply this, that sometimes if we're not careful, we'll follow in our father's footsteps even when it's not productive or spiritual. We need to be so careful that we don't follow in the footsteps of even a parent if indeed those footsteps lead us away from God. So we have to be very careful with that. <clears throat> very, very careful. Now, by the way, I, I just want young people to know that they don't have the right to make that decision yet. When you're older, grown up, you have your own marriage family, then you make those decisions. <clears throat> but you don't get to tell mom and dad, I'm not doing that because I don't think you're godly. Uh, guess what? You don't get to say those things, okay? Uh, you get to just be submissive and obey like you're told to do. So anyway, thank you, preacher. We love you there too, right? Thank you, teenagers. I love you too. And uh, that's helpful, isn't it? <clears throat> now, so we noted a couple mistakes. So we're going to pick back up now uh, where we left off, and we're going to note a third mistake. Once we get past the mistakes, then I'm going to start sharing a few truths with you that we learned from some of these, uh, well, from especially the third mistake. Now, let's go ahead and have a word of prayer, and then we'll turn to a passage in the book of Second Chronicles, and then we're going to get things moving along tonight. We have a baptism, excited about that, and so we're going to get moving along. Father, thank you again for this time together. We're asking that you'd speak to our hearts and that you'd move in our midst. Again, teach us something. Father, may we truly leave here different for having come tonight. We understand that the world tonight is engrossed in a football game, and Lord, it literally, uh, people will mortgage their homes and, Father, put their lives on the line, so to speak, to uh, make good on that. Lord, uh, this is what the world has to look forward to, a game. Now, Lord, I, I, I'm going to admit, I, I look forward to watching the game myself, but it's not everything to me. Matter of fact, it's really not that awfully high on my list of priorities, but I will enjoy it and I'll have a good time. But Lord, the truth is, is that the world, this is their hope. Lord, we need to make sure that it doesn't become ours. And Lord, help us to just focus on you, even these next moments. May we not be distracted by what's going on in the world, but may we be focused on what's taking place in your house. And as we listen to your word, may you, we allow it to penetrate our heart and truly change us. We love you and we need you now. We just thank you for giving us this opportunity to gather tonight. Be glorified in it. In Christ's name, amen. So 2 Chronicles chapter 12, <clears throat> let's go ahead and turn there. And again, we've noted a couple of things along the way. We noted that as we moved along that this Rehoboam, he, he made some good decisions early on. And we noted that, that many of the priests and the uh, Levites came down to Jerusalem because, of course, Jeroboam, he instituted this idolatry worship, and as a result of that, he was full-bore idolatry. 
They didn't like that. They wanted to still, they, many of them had jobs. They, I mean, they needed to be employed as well, as well as they, some of them probably believed in, uh, that idolatry was wrong, which I'm glad they did if indeed that was the reason they left. But many of them fled, if you will, or went down to Jerusalem. Then also the Israelites, we read, came down to Jerusalem also to worship and to sacrifice because, again, God had told them to do that throughout. Jeroboam will ultimately change that. Jeroboam tries to, to, to turn that all around, but Rehoboam's doing a pretty good job. I mean, he's doing all right. He's actually got things moving in the right direction to some degree, it seems like. He was going to fight with the Israelites, and he was going to try to take back those tribes that had gone off on their own, but God said, don't do it. Uh, don't you do that at all. Matter of fact, this is uh, ordained of me, and you just go ahead and move along with what I've given you and be glad that you have what you have. And so for three years, the kingdom of Judah and Rehoboam continued to grow stronger as he walked, the Bible says, in the way of David and Solomon. And uh, so things were going well. He dealt wisely, the Bible says. And uh, then, of course, he, we're going to see he's going to start making a few mistakes along the way. And, and that's, that's a problem. So here we are now in chapter 12, verse 1. And the Bible now says that something happened. Notice what happened here. And there's a turning point here. This is a turning point in the life of Rehoboam. And unfortunately, it's not a good one. <clears throat> and it came to pass when Rehoboam had established the kingdom and had strengthened himself, he forsook the law of the Lord and all of Israel with him. Now notice again, the Bible says that he forsook the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. Mistake number three. Of course, we know what it is, right? He forsakes the law of the Lord. That's a big mistake. Don't forsake the law of the Lord. That's not good. But I want you to notice again, he says, now, he goes, and all Israel with him. That, that kind of threw me a little bit because we know that the kingdom is divided now. There's Israel, there's Judah, and we know that Rehoboam is over Judah. And then Israel, of course, is ruled by Jeroboam. So how is it that we have this King Rehoboam, who's the southern kingdom, uh, the king of the southern kingdom or tribe, and uh, we have the northern uh, kingdom, which it seems was affected by him. Well, the only thing I can think is, is that again, remember those priests uh, and all Israel came to Judah in order to sacrifice unto the Lord, Second Chronicles eleven sixteen says. Now again, it's important to note, again, it said that the priests and all Israel went to Jerusalem in order to sacrifice unto the Lord. We see that. So it would appear to me that when Rehoboam forsook the law of the Lord, it negatively affected all of Israel, not just Judah and those directly under his authority, but also Israel, even though they were ruled by Jeroboam, it affected them negatively as well. It affected all Israel and those who worshiped in Judah. Again, he wasn't officially the king over all Israel, at least to this point. That's the case. We note that. We see it. It's clear. It's evident. But he had influence over all Israel. And that is important to note. He may not have been their king, but he was a leader. Can I tell you that leadership is influence? That's all that it is. Leadership is influence. That's it. That's why on the playground, there's certain children who seem to be in charge. They have influence. If they are leaders, it's because other children have 
given them the right to influence them. They say something, and next thing you know, all the kids run and do what they tell them to do. That's, we'd say leadership, but all that really is is influence. Now, everybody can probably point to a person that they work with that doesn't have the title of manager, isn't considered the boss, may not be the owner of the business. However, they seem to run things. They seem, whether they have the title or not, they seem to be in charge. You want to know what? They have influence. They, they, the people go to them for answers. People depend on and lean on them for things. <clears throat> I believe that what we learn here is that Rehoboam had some influence. Rehoboam was able to make an impact in those people's lives. Even though he wasn't their king, he, all, he was still their leader in many ways. Now again, he would mess that all up, of course, as we see here, because he forsakes the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. So that means that not only did he affect himself and Judah, but it affected Israel too. Anyone, everyone that sought the Lord, everyone that was involved with trying to do things the right way found themselves having a difficult time doing so. I want you to notice another, a, a truth now. Here's a truth I want you to see. The Bible says that, and it came to pass, verse 12, of verse 1 in chapter 12, when Rehoboam had established the kingdom and had strengthened himself. You see that? He strengthened himself. Here, listen, when, when Rehoboam was so strong that he decided or supposed that there was no way in the world that Jeroboam could harm him, he wasn't afraid of Jeroboam anymore, he got rid of his outward profession of godliness and he just simply allowed his true colors to shine through. You know, it's not really, it's common, but it's extremely sad, isn't it? That somebody's in the midst of a trial or tribulation in their life, maybe they're going through a difficult time with their health or their relationship with their wife or their husband. Man, I mean to tell you, they get religion. Man, I mean they're fired up and they're excited about church. They're showing up, seeking the face of God. Man, they want God to do a miracle in their life. And when God brings that deliverance in their life, when the distress, the danger is no longer in sight, when death is no longer knocking at their door, they throw away all their religion. You've never seen that though, have you? Well, that's what we picture here now with, with, with Rehoboam. The Bible says when he strengthened himself, what it's implying is, and what I believe it's trying to tell us is, that while he was still trusting God in a sense because he was concerned about the well-being of his own life, his family, and his nation, he found himself more in tune with God. He found himself drawing nigh to God, but the moment he strengthened himself, the moment he felt strong in himself, he cast off his faith. He didn't need God anymore. And he forsook the law of the Lord. He didn't need the word of God. He had all the answers now. He didn't have any fear. He wasn't concerned. He wasn't worried about anything. So why do I need God? Why do I need his word? I'll tell you something. That's a dangerous place to find yourself in. I want you to look at 2 Chronicles, again, chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 1 and 2 now. And note another truth. 
2 Chronicles 12, 1 and 2, and it came to pass when Rehoboam had established the kingdom and had strengthened himself, he forsook the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. And it came to pass that in the fifth year of King Rehoboam, Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem because they had transgressed against the Lord. God's word outlines, spells it out, clear as day, why Shishak came forth against Rehoboam. Because they had transgressed against the Lord. Here's the truth. Forsaking the law of the Lord is never a good thing. It always turns God's hand against us. It always does. And this is a truth that believers are reminded of in Hebrews. Turn of you into Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 12, verses 6 through 8. What do we learn from this king and the son of one of the wisest men that ever lived? From the wisest man that ever lived. Well, we learn that forsaking the law of the Lord is never a good thing, and it always turns God's hand against us. Watch Hebrews chapter 12, verses 6 through 8. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If you endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof ye are all partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Now notice in verse 6, we read that God chasteneth and scourgeth. That word scourgeth has to do with literally like we could say, well, he, he whips, he lashes, he punishes us severely. We know what a scourge was. Uh, uh, it, it was in a sense basically kind of a, a whip, if you will. I don't know about you, but it wouldn't be very comfortable being whipped by a scourge. It wouldn't be very comfortable being taken to the shed out back and whipped. I mean, I don't know, maybe you had a father, a, a parent, or a grandparent that said, you know, enough's enough. It's time to deal with some things, and they whooped you. And you said, that was not pleasant. It was very uncomfortable. And that's exactly what God promises to do for his, his own, that is. Now, we learn two important things about chastening in verse 7 and 8. Two very important things. First of all, notice verse 7. It will give evidence that a person is a son, not a sinner. So we learn. Where there's chastening, there is evidence that a person is a son and not a sinner. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? See, the very fact that God chastens proves to us that we are indeed his sons. So that's a good thing, I suppose, right? On the other hand, verse 8, what do we learn? It will give evidence that a person is a sinner and not a son. It's the complete opposite. But if ye are without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then ye are bastards and not sons. And again, it's a very strong statement, no doubt about that. But God does not own those who he does not chasten. Amen. That's all there is to it. 
Remember, you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. You were bought with a price. That price was an awful price. The precious, perfect blood of Jesus Christ, the broken body of our Lord and Savior. You are the possession of the Lord Jesus Christ. The moment you place your personal faith and trust in Him, you become His possession, His property. You're no longer your own, and neither am I. But can I tell you, according to verse 8, I want you to know that He will not chasten that which is not His own. So if you can go out into this world and live your life as you please without regard to God and the Word of God, my friend, the truth is you are none of His. They may be part of the human race, but they are not His. They may be a creation of God, but they are not the children of God. Whatever God may be to that person, he is not their father. So many people use the name of Christ and use the name of God just like, like, you know, it's just, oh yeah, I believe in God. How does that affect your life? Well, you believe the Bible? Well, I believe the Bible is the word of God. Yeah, I believe that. Well, how does this book affect your life? What's ever happened to a desire to, 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 to address and deal with the sin in our lives? What's happened to this element we call purity? The fact is, is that we live in such an impure, imperfect, sin-sick world that we have been so tainted by it that we find ourselves accepting it in our own lives. And that is true of all of us, not just you, but me as well. But if there is a proof that we are his property, if there is a proof that we are his children, if there is a proof that you are his son, it's chastening in our lives. We don't talk a lot about chastening today because we don't talk a lot about discipline. You want to talk about spanking a child, man, you'll go to jail, right? So, of course, if we don't spank our kids, God certainly wouldn't spank us. He's not a meanie meanie. Right? I mean, you got to understand how the culture is affecting us in Christianity today. It subtly is undermining all the truths of the Word of God. And we say, well, we're impervious to that. It doesn't affect us in the least. Yes, it does. And we have to be well aware of what God's Word teaches, and we have to be very keenly focused on what He says, not just what we believe He says, but what He literally says, because what God says He always means. Forsaking the law of the Lord is never a good thing. I say never. It always turns God's hand against us. Now again, let's look at 2 Chronicles chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and then we're going to jump to verse 5. We're going to learn another truth. <clears throat> and it came to pass when Rehoboam had established the kingdom and had strengthened himself, he forsook the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. Remember, three years into this thing. He's going to reign for 17 years. He's not been at this too long, 
But by the time the fifth year rolls around, Shishak is coming into town and threatening the people of God and their future. I mean, it's relatively a quick turnover. He's doing a good job early on, but now he somehow has strengthened himself. He feels confident in himself. He doesn't need God or the word of God as he once did. And he forsook the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. And it came to pass that in the fifth year of King Rehoboam, Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem because they had transgressed against the Lord. Verse 5, then came Shemaiah, the prophet, to Rehoboam and to the princes of Judah that were gathered together in Jerusalem because of Shishak and said unto them, thus saith the Lord. Now God is going to speak. Ye have forsaken me, and therefore have I also left you in the hand of Shishak. In verse 1, he forsook the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. In verse 5, ye have forsaken me. Truth, whether we realize it or not, to forsake the word of God is to forsake him. The idea that we can neglect the word of God and the law of God and still maintain a proper relationship with Christ is unrealistic. Doesn't happen. You cannot say, I am not going to obey the word, but I just love Jesus. He's such a blessing to me. I'm telling you, according to the word of God, and you notice how he puts it together here in the passage. He makes it clear when he says, and they forsook the law of the Lord uh, and all of Israel with them and forsook. But he says, ye have forsaken me. He ties the two phrases together with a word and he makes sure we recognize and see the fact that you cannot reject God's word without rejecting God himself. You can't do it. Well, how's your Bible reading? Well, it's pretty good. How's your relationship with God? Well, yeah, it's going good. Yeah, it's going good. I thought you just said your prayer, your, your reading, your Bible reading and study is like non-existent. But your relationship with God's good? How's that happen? How's that happen? How can you forsake the word of God and not have it affect your relationship and walk with Christ? I don't care if you're a preacher. I don't care if you're a preacher's wife. It doesn't matter to me who you are in the, the scheme of things at Community Baptist Temple. The truth is, is that the most fundamental need in the Christian life is communication with God, is to receive from Him and share with Him and fellowship with Him. Rehoboam would eventually humble himself in order to escape the wrath of God. That's happened a few times in all of our lives, right? You know, Lord, get me out of this one. I'll serve you. The question is, did you, did you make good on your promise? Because if you made good on it, then it worked. You say, what worked? Him. He worked on you. But if you don't make good on it, then you've only dug yourself even deeper. Because you're not supposed to make a commitment, you're not supposed to make a, a, a promise and not keep it already, let alone make it to God and not keep it. That's really, I mean, I don't know about you, and I don't think God really sees the difference, but 
From our vantage point, it does seem that he would, but it's pretty nasty. Second Chronicles 12, 12. Again, we note that he humbles himself. The Bible says here, and when he humbled himself, the wrath of the Lord turned from him that he would not destroy him altogether. And also in Judah, things went well. Isn't it wonderful to know that when we sin against God, when we turn our back on the Lord, when we forsake his word and forsake him, that if we'll repent, he'll forgive us? Isn't that wonderful? Now you talk about good news. By the way, last time I checked, I'm having a hard time living perfect life. It's been kind of difficult lately. Man, I'm glad that verse is in the Bible too. I'm glad that it's not just about how Rehoboam messed up and how God said, well, guess what? I'm going to send Shishak down and I'm going to have him put a good whooping on y'all. I'm glad that he said, hey, wait a second now. Uh, He humbled himself and when he humbled himself, the wrath of the Lord turned from him. That humbling thing, that's a hard thing, isn't it, to humble? Do you realize that's the most difficult thing that you have to do in your life? You say, I don't think so. There's other things that are more difficult for me. That's how unhumble you are. You really, you were pretty prideful to be able to say something like that. I mean, honestly, if pride was the very root sin that threw chaos and confusion into the universe, wrecked and ruined humanity destroyed this globe we call earth why would you think anything else would be a bigger problem in your life than that here's the truth we all we will all humble ourselves at some point either here on earth or before the lord that's a reality right We know that. I'm not telling you something you don't know. But let's take a moment and look at it. Look at Romans chapter 14, verse 11. Romans 14, verse 11. Chapter 14, verse 11, we begin reading there. We'll read through verse 12. It says, For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, Every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. We can take the time now to turn over to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. This is kind of the, I guess, the key verse, I guess, would be the, one of the main verses you'd run to when you're trying to support this issue or topic. It says, chapter 2, verse 10 and 11, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Listen, we're all going to humble ourselves at some point. That's just the reality of life. I don't know about you, but I'd rather just willingly humble myself. Again, I've dealt with a number of people through the years in their salvation. You know, one of the things I find is that (laughs) it's a sad situation when you come across somebody, you knock on their door. And it's not sad necessarily. It's really a blessing. But you knock on their door and you begin to talk to them and you find out that they have a terminal disease. 
So you open your Bible and you talk to them about salvation. You say, listen, uh, if you could know beyond a shadow of a doubt you're on your way to heaven, wouldn't that be good news? Yeah, yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess so. I mean, if you could know that without a doubt, wouldn't that be good news? Yeah, 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 it would be, it would be. Can I take a moment and show you? And they say, yeah, and you go, yes. And you open your Bible and you begin to lead them through the Romans road. You begin to show them the wonderful mercy, grace, and love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And boy, they come to the end and they accept and receive the Lord as their Savior and you get excited and they're excited. You go back and you deal with them. And what I find a lot of times is that when they're laying on their deathbed, the one thing they war with is, did I just do this to escape hell? Did I just do this to escape hell? I mean, did I really mean it? Would I have ever really done it if it wasn't for the fact I was dying at that time when you came over? And they struggle with the fact as to whether or not they're really saved and their security, their, their eternal life is always questioned in their mind. I remember I led a fellow to the Lord and uh, he got saved, and he was fired up about it. And it was about a month later he got the call from the doctor that he was terminal. And I remember him saying, well, I said, brother, you know you're saved? He said, well, he said, yeah, 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 I, 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 I mean, I, I did what the Bible said. And I said, well, that's good. And he said, I know, sometimes I just wonder if, I said, stop before you go anywhere, When did you get that phone call? When did you know that you were going to die potentially from a a disease? He said, well, just, it just, it was, it was, was it before or after you trusted Christ? He said, well, it was, it was after. I said, how long after? He goes, oh, it was at least, I think a month or so. I said, so why did you get saved? Did you get saved because you believed you needed to and wanted to? Or did you get saved because you had to in a sense? He said, well, I did it because I felt I needed to. I felt the Lord telling me to get saved and I got saved. I said, well, then do you need to really doubt it then? I mean, your motives were as pure as snow. I, I'm going to tell you, we got to be, we, we need to settle this issue today. If you don't know Christ as your Savior today, you need to settle that now. You don't know what tomorrow holds. But you know what? We're going to bow. And, and you know what? It doesn't matter. You're going to bow now or you bow later. I'll tell you what. I want to bow because I want to bow. I want to bow because I get to bow. I want to bow out of choice, out of a willful desire to bow before the king of all the glory. I don't want to be forced to. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, I'll tell you what, some amazing truths we learn from this king, and from the son of the wisest man on earth. Let's not be guilty of strengthening ourselves to the point where we don't believe we need God anymore. Let's not get to that place where you know, our income's sturdy and strong enough that, well, you know what, I know where the bills are going to get paid. I don't need to pray about that no more. I mean, my kids are healthy and strong, and I've got good insurance, so I'm set. Hmm, okay. I mean, we bought this house, and we got nice cars now, and things are going well, and the job's secure. Uh, yeah, okay. All right. 
strengthen ourselves. When we strengthen ourselves, we diminish him. The Bible says we're the ones that should be getting lower. He should be growing and getting higher. Whether we realize it or not, forsaking the law of the Lord is never a good thing. It always turns God's hand against us. As you think about your life and you think about your relationship and your lifestyle even, is there any evidence that you could point to or someone else might be able to point to that you have forsaken the law of the Lord? If that is the case, then they could probably make a good case that you have forsaken him because that's what we learned. You can't forsake this and not forsake him. I mean, we could turn to verses like John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. We could go on to show that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father. We could see that, there's a, a, that they're one and the same. We could even look at it from that perspective. But even in this Old Testament, it was obviously clear. You can't forsake the Word of God. And not forsake him. Forsaking the law of the Lord is never a good thing we learn. It always turns God's hand against us. If there was one thing I've always wanted in my life, it was the hand of God on my shoulder. A lot of things are important to me, but nothing more important to me. Oh, I'm not going to say that there haven't been times in my life where I started thinking, wow, have I maybe kind of gotten off the deep end? Maybe I've started to stray a little bit. Maybe I've started to strengthen myself too much. And then I look over and I want to make sure I see his hand there. And if it's not there, I better go where I can reach him. And as we said, as we ended tonight, we'll all humble ourselves at some point. I want to encourage you to humble yourself while you can, while it's your decision to do so. To make that choice on your own. Pride raises its ugly head in all of our lives. We've got to die to self. We have to crucify that thing. That old flesh is, as we used to say, it's a kicker. so funny, the Bible tells us that the old man died when we were trusted Christ as our Savior. But in my mind, I, I see myself with a pick and a shovel going over to the old graveyard and uncovering that old sinful flesh, picking him up. <clears throat> I can't do this because of my back. It's really getting harder the older I get. And putting him on my shoulders. <clears throat> and firemen carrying him around with me. How you doing today, brother? I'm doing good. Feel a little weighed down today. You might want to get rid of that old corpse. Oh, yeah, you're right. I done dug him up again. Off he goes. 
when I confess my sin and die to self. I want to encourage you today to die. Crucify that flesh over and over if you have to. I know he did it once and that's all that was necessary, but sadly we pick him back up, throw it back in the grave and get moving. And you do that by humbling yourself before God, confessing your fault and your sin and acknowledging that he alone is able to forgive and to give you the victory in your life. Father, we come to you. We thank you for all you do for us and we thank you for what you've already done for us. Tonight we gather, tonight we're asking you to meet our needs as we've taken the time to consider some truths from a king and from the son of a man who was the wisest ever. Lord, may we not allow ourselves to lose sight of you. May we place you where you belong in our lives and rejoice in you. Oh, be with us tonight. Do a mighty work in our hearts and help us to humble ourselves regularly, consistently, daily, even hourly and every minute. Give us victory over the flesh. Give us victory over the devil. And help us, Lord, to live a Christian life that's pleasing in your sight. Let the words of our mouth and the meditation of our, our, our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, our strength and redeemer. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand, every head bowed, every eye closed. If you're coming for baptism, you can come now, but the altars are open today. It's so crazy, really, with the things of the Lord. You know, we talk about, we talk about this, like people are bad if they sin. But the truth is, when we acknowledge our sin and we take steps to correct it and deal with it, that's not showing how bad we are. That's showing how much we desire to be right with God. It's when we hide our sin. It's when we try to cover it that it's a problem. There's a place to die. Die to self and die to ambition. Die to sin. Confessing our fault before God, sharing our need before the Lord. What a miracle He'll do in our life if we'll just humble ourselves.